Good morning. This morning I'm reading Joshua 21, 41 through 45. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it. So it was with all these cities. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Man, what a, what a, you may be seated. What a, what a more resounding thank you, God, after she reads those words. Not one promise failed. All came to pass. Um, before I get into the sermon, I want to clarify something really quick. We have parent commissioning that we've said is next week. Now, last week we announced that you can get in touch with Cassie or um, you can come talk to either Brian or I and we'll get you on a list. And as we were talking about how to have that service, it became very clear to us that we've never done a parent commissioning at Redeemer. And so we have lots of parents, lots of children. Uh, and so what we wanted to do instead, kind of like Abraham circumcised his whole house first and then every subsequent child, we're not going to do that. But what we're going to do is parent commissioning. We're just going to one fell swoop it. And we're going to, um, we're going to just invite everyone. Uh, and one of the aspects of, of what we believe about church membership and parenthood within the church, uh, it, it, it actually levels up the commitment that you're making as a church member. And we'll give many more details next Sunday. The sermon will be um, in regards to parent commissioning. And then Brian's also going to give us some really practical ways that the church comes alongside parents. But what that means is that um, church membership is making a commitment not only to, uh, in general, the whole body. You're making a commitment to parents of young kids that need help raising their children, that need help discipling their kids because it's hard. And so that, there's a, a lot of practical ways like volunteering in the back, babysitting, um, just spending time together in people's homes. There's lots of ways that as a church member, you can partner with parents within the church. Uh, we're gonna go over those more specifically next week. But I wanted to clarify, nobody has to reach out to Cassie. Um, the, the structure of the, the service next week will be um, it's going to be more normal. It'll just be tagged on to the end. We're going to do the parent commissioning. And so um, we'll have more details about that specifically and why, how membership plays into that, uh, and then what it's going to look like moving on in the, in the future. But uh, we wanted to invite everyone into that. Also, because there's a little awkwardness with the, the orientation of parent commissioning coming before membership, and there's some people that want to do both. And so we're just we're just going to do it all together next week, and then we'll do um, the membership class, the 6th and the 13th. For anyone open to that, you do need to reach out to us about that so we can be prepared um, and have sufficient space uh, for that class. So um, I had a whole introduction about like paper maps and like GPS devices and like kind of picking on the younger crowd for not knowing what paper maps are and all that. But what I started thinking about while we were singing is just um, like this, 
in connection with parent commissioning and, and myself wondering sometimes as a parent, how? How do I do this? How do I follow Jesus and then let, bring my kids along to follow Jesus? Like, I just don't know the way. And the, the point of my initial introduction was that we don't know the way. Like, I still have to sometimes use GPS in San Angelo, the place where I grew up and lived for 26 years before moving away. And even when we came back, I took my kids <clears throat> down a street where um, I didn't even know existed. I've been to people's homes that are in neighborhoods that I've spent years in, <clears throat> places I grew up in this town, and I didn't know how to get to these homes within those neighborhoods. It's kind of a silly, you know, like I had, I had to get the introduction out somehow. But the point is, even if we think about parenting, we think about um, even if we're single and we're, we're in the workplace, surrounded by temptations to desire what the world desires, to find a, a way to cope with life the way that our neighbors cope. How do we know the way? We talk about following Jesus, but what does it mean when we say we're following Jesus? It's not merely modeling our life after him. It's not merely finding salvation in him. Those two things are true. To get to where we're going, we have to know the way. <clears throat> there's a whole joke about Dora the Explorer and like, there's a paper map in the show that kids today are watching that will never use a paper ma a map in the future. Anyways, um, it was worth leaving behind, I guess. <clears throat> We've noticed throughout Joshua this theme of the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God. Um, God tells Joshua, I will, cause you to I will cause you to lead the people to inherit the kingdom, to inherit their land. And so we see this reiteration of this kingdom theme in Joshua. But what we see along with kingdom, much less obvious... It's much more of an undertone is this theme of paths and ways of knowing how to move within and throughout the kingdom. It's actually much more explicit in other parts of the Bible. The Psalms, the end of Psalm 139, David says, God, would you seek in me any grievous way? And would you lead me in your ancient paths? The way everlasting. Other translations say ancient paths. We also see Jesus say, I'm the way. And we're like, oh, okay, what does that mean? Jeremiah 6, 16. God commands Jeremiah and the elders of Israel, stand on the ancient paths. Stand on the highways and point my people to the ancient paths. Command them to walk in it. Show them that it restores their souls. And then God, God actually says that Israel will reply, we will not walk in it. And Jesus says, narrow is the gate to the way of heaven. <clears throat> but what is the destination? We must know the way, but where are we going? Well, in, in Joshua, Joshua 21 
Um, We'll talk in a second about what it points back to, but what the whole of Scripture points to as, as our destination is getting God. You see, the Israelites were split up into tribes, and we've just spent the last several chapters learning who gets what piece of land, which tribe gets what what piece of land, but it's the Levites who don't get land. Ironically, this was a punishment. There was some participation that um, Levi, one of the brothers of the other um, tribe's namesakes, the other forefathers of Israel, uh, he had defiled the family in some way. And God punished him by saying, you don't get an inheritance. But in a a, a turn of events only God can do, we flip this upside down, and now Levi's inheritance is the best one. Because we see repeated in Joshua 13, and we see here in Joshua 21, that the inheritance of the Levites was that God would be their possession. This will only hit our hearts in such a way that matters when we long for God to be our possession, when we embrace this this part of our souls that's crying out, okay, how do I get God in this life? Because we're all asking that question in our souls, whether you admit it or not, whether you know it or not. Every one of us was designed for our souls to be in the presence of our Father in heaven but it was sin that kicked us out of the house. We rejected God. We said no thank you to his presence. And sin plucked us out of our home, put us in a foreign land in the middle of the night without a map, no way to find our way back home to God. But still our souls are crying out, how do I get home? Which way is the way to God? And so we're searching. Our bodies, our flesh, our minds, our desires, and our wills are searching for God. We like to say, no, I'm searching for truth. I'm searching for my truth. Your truth can be whatever you think it is. We like to say, I'm searching for anything else. Pleasure, satisfaction, success, knowledge. All of us are searching for God. We'll even find, uh, St. Augustine says, uh, my heart is restless until it rests in you, that nothing will satisfy me. I will find contentment in nothing until we find it in God. And we know that that's true because we've all tried it. All of us in this room are guilty. All of us in this room are guilty of saying, no, thank you, God. I will find contentment for my soul somewhere else. but it doesn't, it, it doesn't work because when the buzz wears off, we're left feeling worse than we were before. We've got more friends than we've ever had. We're surrounded by more people than we've ever been surrounded by. But I still feel so lonely, maybe even more lonely. I've got more money in the bank account. My checks are bigger than ever. But there's still something in me that wants more from life. I just can't stop searching for more. That's because your soul will not be content until you're content in God. There was a long time, many years, that I spent 
searching for this contentment in religion, going to church every week, trying real hard, striving to do all the good Christian things that I thought I was, I was meant to do, stuffing down my anger and my shame until I just couldn't, and it just boiled up, and then do the Christian thing and ask forgiveness and repent, and then it's just a cycle. And all along this path of thinking I was doing the right thing, that I was following Jesus, I still could not connect when Scripture said, Jesus is my joy. God is my strength and my fortress. Rejoice in the Lord always. I want to spend everlasting days in the presence of the Father. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. That did not connect with my soul because I was doing it. I was there and I was miserable and I was tired. We've all tried chasing after toys and pleasure and knowledge and success and esteem and religion. We've all tried it but still our souls want something more. So how do we know the way? How do we know the way back home? Because as long as I'm on these other paths, searching for freedom, I'm still finding myself less free, unconvinced that my soul will ever be satisfied. How do we get to God? Well, Joshua 21 will show us that the way to God is through death. And things just took a real somber turn. The way to God is through death. So how do we move through the kingdom? How did, how does, because Joshua is a true story. The Old Testament's a true story about a people who really lived in a real land and had real relationship with their father in heaven, how did they get through the kingdom to God? Well, the priests were the map. So in God's kingdom, in Israel, God intended for the priests to be the map. Um, And we see this in the Torah. Joshua 21 points back all the way to an entire book within the Torah because Joshua 21 is about the tribe of Levi this group of people known as the Levites who had one particular job to be priests. That's what God meant. You will be my possession. You will be the people that carry me throughout the kingdom. This is how they will know the way. So Joshua 21 is about Levi that points us all the way back to, do y'all know which book within the first five books of the Bible they point to? We did like a call and response last week that was awesome. Let's try it one more time. What's the book in in the middle of the Torah, in the middle of, some people call it the Pentateuch, those first five books? Leviticus, thank you. Leviticus is in the middle of the Torah, and that matters. That matters because the Torah is actually written in a chiastic structure. There's five books. That means there's one middle. So the chiastic structure means that the beginning and the end of something are paralleled, and then as you move towards the center, 
you see more parallels. And then as you get closer and closer to the center, you see more and more parallels, and the center stands out as the point. It's the whole purpose. It's kind of odd to us when we read Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then we learn that Leviticus is the point, because Leviticus is a weird book. It talks about scabs and scaly skin and what to do with a dead carcass, what not to do with a dead carcass, who you can and can't touch when and in what place. And so it's all about Leviticus. Well, Leviticus itself is also chiastic in structure. And we're getting closer and closer to why Leviticus is in the center. The beginning and end of Leviticus parallel one another. As you move closer towards the center, there are more parallels. The middle of Leviticus is the sacrificial system. The whole point of the Torah was to show us we have a problem of sin, but God gifts us a way to deal with it. The sacrificial system in Leviticus was given as a gift to the people of Israel, as a way to purify them from their own wretchedness. No other nation No other people in the world were given this opportunity to be free from their sin, except Israel. Given this sacrificial system, the point of Leviticus, we're getting closer and closer to the point of Leviticus. And so just imagine yourself, you're an Israelite, you're just living the normal life you live now. Imagine that you... um, man, you really just needed to make this sneaky business deal because if you were able to get a little bit more out of this person, then you could put bread on the table for your family. Imagine that you accidentally harmed your neighbor or you intentionally lied to your parents Any of these would require you to bring a sacrifice to the temple and offer it to the priests. And it actually had to be a good sacrifice. You couldn't just give away the least of your goats. Let's take the runt, the weaker one. Had to be a spotless lamb that was a sacrifice. So the priests engaged in this process of burning food We're giving up something valuable to us of slaughtering animals. And the the normal Israelite had to participate in this process of death so that they could engage with the reality of their lives that sin leads to death. That's the end of sin, and it will go there. And the priests... We're most familiar with death. These were the guys who stopped smelling the stench of dead animal carcasses. That the blood spilled and and flowing on the ground just became normative. They measured their steps to step over it. The priests were given the role of engaging this sacrificial system to lift up the effects of sin in death to show Israel the way to God because it was through these sacrifices that the nation would be forgiven, that individuals would be forgiven and they'd be purified and sent back home 
to live in the presence of God in his kingdom. But there's a problem with this. Sacrifices were required as long as sin exists. Not the other way around in purpose. So what this means is that as long as there was sin, there had to be sacrifices and there was always sin. Now, if we even take the central portion of the purification laws in Leviticus, they're also chiastic and they point to the very razor's edge of the whole Torah. The whole first five books of the Bible point to a single moment in every year of Israel's life. The very center of these five books is the day of atonement. When the high priest would bathe to purify himself. He would sacrifice a bull for himself and his own family to purify not just his own body, but the body of his nearest relatives. And then he would take multiple animal sacrifices as he atoned for the sin of all of Israel once a year. It's wiping the slate clean. This is a gift that God gave to his people to just wipe the slate clean. But the problem is that it's temporary. And it can only be temporary because the blood of animals cannot take away the sins of man. They can only forgive for just one more year. And guess what? Next year, we got to do it again. And throughout the year, we got to keep doing it. The sacrificial system was a gift, but it was given to them incomplete. In Genesis 3, God made a promise that he would crush the head of sin and death forever. And what Joshua 21, as it points back to Leviticus, what Leviticus points to is that Genesis 3 has not been fulfilled yet. I'll forgive you for now, but I've not dealt with sin yet. It had to keep coming back. So Israel was left waiting. God made all these promises to Israel as they walked into the land that I will give you a land. I will give you a kingdom. I will be with you. And we see at the very end of chapter 21, not one of those promises was left unfulfilled. And praise God for that. But God had made a promise in Genesis 3 to defeat sin and death forever that we're still waiting to be defeated. Israel was very familiar. That union with God, their relationship with Yahweh was the most important aspect of their lives. And so they had to keep going back to the temple. They had to keep giving up from the best of their um, sheep, of their grain, of anything that they, uh, all their money they had to spend for the sacrificial system. They had to continue giving it up. And it was meant to show them how broken and needy they were for the forgiveness of God. But they got God at the end of it. They got to stay in the kingdom. They got to be in his presence. They got to experience his grace and mercy through forgiveness and provision of being in the land. But they knew that the only way to God was through death. And so they're left wondering for hundreds of years, when is this going to stop? When will we finally be able to walk in freedom 
where the source of sin is dealt with. The Torah, it points to Leviticus. Leviticus points to the sacrifices. The sacrifices point to the day of atonement, this annual ritual worship and forgiveness of sins for the nation of Israel. But like I said, it's imperfect. It's temporary. It wasn't made to to completely satisfy. It wasn't made to deal with the source of sin, just um, the surface of sin. So we're going to look at uh, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, to understand a little bit more about this, this system of sacrifices and what made it incomplete and, and how God planned all along. He planned all along to deal with the problem of sin. God did not create the sacrificial system and then realize it was broken and then, oh, I got I to do a better way. That was the plan all along. And I think we can look at the time frame of that and we're like, God, why would you take thousands of years to make that happen? I think that's probably one of the primary questions that I will end up asking when I finally get to see him face to face. Um, But one of the answers, one of the answers that, that sometimes feels dissatisfying Why did it take that long? Jesus repeated it often. The time must be fulfilled. In the fullness of time. We just don't know why it took that long and why God gave a temporary solution to a permanent problem. But in in Hebrews 10, let's read uh, starting in verse 4. We're talking about the Day of Atonement here. This is a book written to Israel. They are so familiar with this annual ritual Day of Atonement. The author of Hebrews, we still don't know who he is, but he says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, in verse five, because of this, When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. He's saying, you made me human. You put me in their shoes so that I could be the perfect iteration of them, so that I could be innocent. In burnt offerings and and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure because it, it couldn't fix us. God didn't take pleasure in these sacrifices because he still didn't get all of us. We're still left broken. So then I said, behold, this is Jesus speaking. I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What he's talking about is Genesis 3, this promise to crush sin and death forever. Jesus became the day of atonement sacrifice for us. As our great high priest, another way that Hebrews describes him. He didn't just perform a sacrifice, he became our sacrifice. In his perfect human innocence, his death broke 
sin and death for us. We don't have to keep coming back and performing these rituals. We don't have to keep coming back and saying, Jesus, I sinned. I need to accept you as my Lord and Savior all all over again. I need to receive your forgiveness. We don't have to do that. It's once and for all. It's a permanent sacrifice because Jesus is enough. God himself, perfect, died on the cross, spilled his blood as has been done for centuries so that we could deal with the promise of sin just by coming to him and saying, yes, I believe, help my unbelief. The way to God is through death. Let's look at John 14, uh, one through seven, just for a moment. As our souls are longing to know how do we get to God, we see even in John 14, the last hours of the life of Jesus, he's with his disciples and the people closest to him are still struggling to connect the dots. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, which is an echo of Joshua 1, when God tells Joshua, don't be afraid. I'm bigger than whatever you're afraid of. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, trust God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, I would, what, if it were not so, what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you, this new kingdom, he's preparing a new kingdom, a new Jerusalem. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Do you see this connection between kingdom language and the way, these paths? But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you see that the Father is the destination? In the life of Jesus, the Father was always the destination. He says, I'm going to the Father now. I'm going to the destination, and you know the way. And they're still confused, like, uh, God, I, Jesus, I don't know what destination you're talking about. Where are you going, and how do we get there? And Jesus is, it's almost exasperated. He's like, guys, the Father is the destination. The only way to get to the Father is through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. The Father, God being the destination, links us back to the priest where God is their possession. And their role is to show all of Israel and the world that God is our possession. He's the whole point. And why does this matter? We talked uh, last week and we've talked in many weeks that Exodus 34, 6 through 7, why it matters that God is our possession is because who God is. He's 
patient. He's slow to anger. He's kind. He's gracious, quick to forgive. And the way to get this God is through death. Jesus being, in, being the way means that we follow his footsteps. We engage our lives in the way that Jesus lived. We practice what he practiced. We pray, not my will, but yours be done. But it also means that we get Jesus while we're on the way. You see, in Psalm 23, we get this promise that God will lead us on the everlasting paths, these paths of righteousness, the right way to live our lives. But then the very next verse, the very next line, it says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. These right paths are directly through the valley of the shadow of death. The only way to God is through death. But it's the shadow of death because Christ already died. He went all the way. He went through the valley of death so that the valley we're in would merely be a shadow. It would only tell us what death is like, what Jesus endured for us. In John 21, <clears throat> we hear a story of um, Jesus restoring Peter. If you want to turn to John 21, we'll be in verse 15. You see, immediately after <clears throat> Jesus' arrest, he was waiting trial as a criminal, and all of the friends of Jesus, not, not just like the couple hundred people that followed him pretty devotedly, his 12 closest friends, they all left, and we were left with Peter. Peter was the only one that followed him. But then we know also that Peter denied him. Peter denied knowing him to save himself so that he wouldn't also have to go stand trial. He rejected Jesus. But we know that uh, Peter's story doesn't end there. We know that Jesus restored Peter. I was listening to um, another, another pastor uh, preach on this sermon, and he said, um, there's a point in this story where, where Peter says that he was hurt by Jesus continuing this process. And so it's important for us to know that even as we pursue Jesus for healing, it's probably going to hurt. There's, there's pain in healing our shame and our wounds and forgiving our guilt. Well, let's read John 21, 15 through 19. Jesus restoring Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's speaking to the fish. Do you love me more than whatever it is this world could give you to cope with life? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. 
Peter said, Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved in his spirit because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this was a, um, a prophecy for the way that Peter would die. Church history tells us that he died on a cross like Jesus, but he was so unwilling to die like his Savior that he asked for them to turn him upside down. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Following Jesus is being taken to a place where we do not want to go. So why do we go there? Why would we be willing to engage in this pathway of death and self-denial and saying, not my will, but yours be done? I will not cope with the ways that this world begs me to cope, but I'll exist within the reality of my life that I'm surrounded by sin and death. And I'll walk straight through the valley. Here's why. Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they bring me comfort. It's the presence of God. That is why we engage this path of death. That is why we engage in this path of self-denial. At the pinnacle of his ministry, Jesus called out to all of the people listening to him, his disciples and the thousands of people around. And he said, if you want to follow me, then pick up your cross. Pick up the symbol of your death and follow me. I'm going through the valley of death. You have to come with me. So the life of a Christian is not ignoring these challenging emotions that we have of grief and sadness and pain, shame and guilt. It's not ignoring them and trying to cover them up with more stuff, more success to make our shame feel better, more friends to make our loneliness feel better. But we walk through that valley because Jesus walks with us. And we find our contentment, the satisfaction for our souls in him alone. There's a lot in scripture that, that leads us in this way, that aids us in being honest with ourselves, being honest with God. Um, the Psalms, there, there's a famous quote. I don't even know who, who said it at this point. It's been going around so much there's a famous quote that says the Bible um, talks, the, the Bible speaks to us, but the Psalms speaks for us. That there's just something incredibly vulnerable and human about the Psalms. 
that leads us in the way of confession, that leads us in the way of uh, putting our hope in Christ, that leads us in the way of remembering that the way to God is through death. Our bodies, our, our spirits, our minds are, are going to constantly be trying to cope with codependent relationships on whatever we can find nearest to us. Religion, substances, people, activities, even, even being absent, not engaging is a way to cope. The call and the way of Jesus is to walk straight through the reality of our lives that we are sad, that we are lonely, that we do need God. We don't have what we want, but because the Lord is our shepherd, we have everything we need. The way of Jesus is, is discovering that Jesus is the better inheritance than the land, than than the prosperity, than the milk and the honey. Jesus himself is the better inheritance. And he's better because he's our wonderful counselor and he heals our souls. He's our mighty God who saves us and who keeps us. He's our everlasting father who cares for us and loves us well. And he's our prince of peace who satisfies and restores our souls. Now, I haven't quite addressed these last three verses in Joshua 21, so let's read those now. Ben, you can go ahead and come up. Joshua 21, 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. Promise fulfilled. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, promise fulfilled, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, promise fulfilled. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The end of the, the giving out the inheritance ends with Levi to point back that there's something more and something better coming. And the promises at the end of the chapter about Levi means that God will fulfill it. God will give us the better thing. Whatever we can find in this world will only temporarily satisfy us, just like the sacrificial system. It will only barely cover it up for a minute. But to deal with the problem of sin and brokenness within us, we must Engage Jesus in the way of death. We accept his death and resurrection as our permanent atonement. And we follow him. And we trust in him. And we walk on the way with him through the reality of our lives that we are not able to go where we want to go. But we have everything we need. Joshua 21 points to Leviticus. Leviticus points to the sacrifices that point to atonement, that points to the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of these last three verses. 
The blood of Jesus is the fulfillment. And so as we take communion this morning, remember that the sacrifices were not permanent. There was a better sacrifice that dealt with all of it for us. And we don't only get salvation and forgiveness. We get God. Salvation is the gateway to God. The way to God is through death and forgiveness. Now, for those of us who confess Jesus as our perfect sacrifice and our source of forgiveness, we take the bread, we take the cup, we eat and we drink, and we do this in remembrance of him.